Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but the annuals don't count. Well, thanks for joining us for a special review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Today, we are going to be rounding up part one of a series of reviews of Absolute Carnage that originally premiered for our Patreon supporters back when these issues were first published. That's right. We're going to be reviewing Absolute Carnage issues number one and two. But actually, Dan, these were you're doing with some special guests. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the, the guests that you brought onto the show to help you out while I was off not wanting to talk about Absolute Carnage with you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be explicit. Mark did not want to talk about this book. <laughs> I, I I pulled my curmudgeonly uh, cranky co-host card. and but, but, but it brought us opportunity to bring some awesome people on. And Dan, you're going to tell us about that. I was excited to welcome back our frequent contributor, Alan Schursel, to help me kick off these reviews with the mega-sized Absolute Carnage number one. Now, some of you early subscribers to our show who kind of like jump on the feed right away may have already listened to that show when I let it go early. I kind of wanted to give everybody a bit of a tease for what kind of content was coming. So if you've already listened to that you know, review of issue one, Feel free to skip ahead to my review of the second issue alongside YouTube star Xavier Mendoza, creator of the Godzilla Mendoza YouTube account. You know, I'll put a time code link in the description for you to kind of jump ahead to where that review starts. But I know you guys are going to be thrilled with both of these reviews because they're both awesome guys who have a lot to say about this series and Venom comics and yada yada. They're just good and funny guys. Yeah, so if you enjoy these, you know, remember that this episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. You know, these people were brought on because you guys asked for it with your support of our Patreon. So if you enjoy the show and you want us to help continue while getting amazing bonus content like these reviews when they were originally released to our Patreon subscribers and additional episodes that we never released publicly, head on over to our show notes, click on that big Patreon banner and, you know, join the team and, and have a lot of fun with us. So let's get to the action, Dan. We hope you enjoy our review of Absolute Carnage Number 1 with the great Alan Shurstall. Or as he puts it, available Alan Shurstall. <laughs> <laughs> What's new?
Enjoy our review of Absolute Carnage issue number one. Alan, you and I are here today to talk about Absolute Carnage number one, the beginning, I guess kind of beginning, because we had like that number zero issue with the free comic book day. I guess it wasn't called number zero, but it might as well have been. And uh, now we're here to kind of kick off this big Marvel event in style to talk about Absolute Carnage. How do you even identify where a Marvel event starts these days? You know, I mean, granted, yes, this is the first issue of Absolute Carnage. This is, in World War I terms, this is the assassination of the Archduke. But there sure is a whole lot of political maneuvering and other books going on before before the Archduke gets shot. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to say this then. It's the first one that says Absolute Carnage on the front page. So that's where I'm kind of demarking the point of you know, no return. We are full on into absolute carnage. Let all of the glut of B titles begin. So before we get into it, and speaking of glut of titles, I kind of thought we should talk about very quickly our thoughts on the Venom series thus far, and I guess Maximum Carnage as well. I, you know, asked you to come join me on the show today and and was like, Alan, you have to read Venom before you really get into this event. And so you went out and picked up a couple of the trades. I guess, uh, what do you think about this kind of run of Donny Cates, Ryan Stegman, uh, Venom so far? Well, first off, can I just say that very few invitations I receive demand this kind of outlay of cash <laughs> on my part. So first, I've got to buy the $8 Absolute Carnage issue, then the the Venom trades from Ryan Cates. And what was especially surprising about this for me is I, I have a pretty deep general antipathy towards the Venom and Carnage characters. You know, not necessarily in the Amazing Spider-Man books, but uh, but I have, I have two main issues with with them just in general in the way they've been used through the years in the Spider-Verse and in Marvel in general. First is I much prefer horror stories to, to, to monster stories, at least when I'm supposed to have some investment in the reality of the world. Like I can love a good dumb Gremlins ghoulie style monster story on its own. But when we're in the universe of like Peter Parker's responsibility it just makes no sense to me that there's these symbiotes running around and other books are on their own murdering people. Like Peter Parker would like chase like a wallet thief to Long Island, like take a whole day doing that. There's no way Carnage is out there murdering people in the countryside and Peter Parker's letting that happen. He and Reed Richards would have eliminated the symbiotes from the planet long, long ago. Right. <laughs> so I, I find like the whole premise of those books is kind of ludicrous to me. And, you know, especially like Eddie Brock as Venom antihero. Yes, Eddie Brock is a pretty good character and Venom's a great power set. But it just doesn't square with like why Peter Parker would let that exist is beyond me. So I haven't read many of these books. When you put Flash Thompson in a suit and like shields involved, that all makes a lot more sense. And one thing I really like in the, the recent Venom series that you made me read and that I wound <laughs> up surprisingly thoroughly enjoying, I only bought the first trade on your recommendation. Okay. I bought the second one cause I enjoyed it. Look That's, at you here, Alan. This is a horror story. And this is a horror story that is invested in the consequences of the horror. This is not a, here's Venom, here's a Venom splash, here's a one-liner, here's someone getting their guts ripped out. It's it's not that. In fact, this goes back to, you know, 
the Venom series, God, beautifully drawn by Stegman, you know, goes back to like the earliest Western horror stories we know, like Beowulf, you know, right at the very start. It's like explicitly linking this monster with the history of monsters all throughout a human history in a way that not only is, you know, scary and awesome and badass, but it also, in a way, I think, lets Peter Parker off the hook a little bit. Like once we have Venom and Grendel, you know, or symbiotes, you know, back attacking and killing the Anglo-Saxons, <laughs> suddenly it's Peter Parker thinking, hey, I'm going to bring home this alien costume is not necessarily the inciting incident that led to thousands of mass murders. Right. You know, Venom has suddenly become a more cosmic creation. I mean, he's always been alien, but, you know, the Donny Cates run is really kind of established, you know, Null and the Void and all of these more cosmic instances, tying it into like Thor's series in a way that's really intriguing. To me, like what I like about this book is that it kind of does what I wish all of Marvel's new series would do, which is like it comes in with a really bold, big idea that both like expands the universe of this character and get, makes it very character oriented. And to that point, I think Donny Case is one of the best writers Marvel's had in a very long time. I think he kind of gets the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby thing, which is like intense personal stakes, but larger than life canvas. And mm. that's very much on display in all of his books, but none more so, I think, than this Venom series. And that he's able to like take all of the disparate elements of Venom that I've hated over the years, whether it be all of the like other symbiotes or the naming of the symbiotes as the Clintar or, you know, the planet of the symbiotes. I roll my eyes at all this stuff because I just like Venom as like a, like you said, like a Spidey villain, keeping it simple and not expanding it into mass killings around the country or making him into a lethal protector, which did feature Spider-Man in a role there. But to mm -hmm. me, this like takes all of that stuff, consolidates it and makes it s simple again. You know, even down to the point right in issue 11 of Venom, we find out that the cancer that Venom caused was like a like a fake out by the symbiote to like keep this kind of tortured relationship, the symbiotic relationship between Eddie and, and the symbiote going by faking out this cancer thing. And it's like, oh, like suddenly all of those weird interpretations of the character make a lot of sense. And it takes a really smart person to make that work. And that's what really thrills me the most about this book. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think the word thrills is not an exaggeration of of my response to to reading this. And I cared. I actually cared about Eddie and his relationship with this symbiote, which is which is madness. And Eddie should be a truly interesting character, but he often is not. I mean, he's certainly somebody I can relate to, a former journalist trying to make it in a world <laughs> that hates journalists. <laughs> There's that great scene from Absolute Carnage, which we'll get into, where he's like raging at the TV and Peter holds him back. <laughs> and he's like, well, oh, he hates TV news. Oh, that was so good. But there's yeah. some stuff in the the Venom series, which, you know, also is Cates and Stegman, just like the Absolute Carnage book, yeah. where like in some of the earlier issues, there's this really something I've kind of thought of, but never have seen dramatized this well, was Eddie Brock worrying over the fact that the symbiote loves Flash Thompson more. Yes. Like there's some beautiful stuff with that. And then uh, just a couple issues later, it turns out, no, the symbiote loves Eddie so much that he's been like 
you know, aggressively manipulating Eddie's reality so that Eddie feels like he needs it. It's so good and creepy. It is really creepy. And and to that creepy level, one of the things I've really liked about this in terms of Stegman and the kind of art team's involvement is how much the world of the Venom comic feels like its own universe in a way. Like, yes, it incorporates the history of the Marvel universe, but the, even the color scheme is this kind of like dirty oranges and purples and it's always raining and it's always nighttime. And it doesn't, re- it feels like this is a universe unique to Eddie. I mean, even in the first six issues when we've got the kind of celestials falling out of the sky from the Avengers books, you know, Eddie's world fighting the giant like dragon symbiote feels like it's very mm-hmm. much apart from that. So much that when Miles shows up, it's terrifying for Miles because it's Absolutely. like you should not be here, Miles. Absolutely. Having the kind of a superhero MCU character, uh, MCU, what am I saying? 616 characters, you know, show up in what is a legit horror comic, like just feels scary in a way having horror characters and monsters show up in the 616 titles does not you know like often venom stories back when i was young and they were first writing venom stories it just it just felt like an imposition of this kind of fangoria splash gore art you know thrown into a spider-man story and honestly it this the mix felt wrong to me you know, I know a lot of the stories are now regarded as classics and I I can see they have, you know, power and intensity, you know, the best ones, but something like like Maximum Carnage was just just so clownish and cheap and obvious not monster nonsense thrown at Spider-Man in ways that just seemed out of balance with who the Spider-Man character is, what he's equipped to deal with and what that character cares about. And it's kind of a mockery of Spider-Man's values too. Like the idea that, you know, that series could go on and kill that many people and have Spider-Man still hesitating over whether or not Carnage deserves to die. It's kind of an extreme that we're challenging Spider-Man's values about not killing, but it makes him look like an idiot by the end of it. You know, like I'm all for not killing, but there has to be a certain point where Someone has killed a million people and you're like, you know, like maybe that person <laughs> should be taken out in, in some regard. Like, you it, it makes Spider-Man seem dumb. And like, again, mm-hmm. I'm not for murder and I like that v- virtue of Spider-Man's, but it was never meant to be tested in that way, I don't think. The first time Spider-Man realized this alien costume was up to something, he took it right to the Baxter building. And that's, you know, just kind of where a lot of the Venom Carnage stuff feels off to me, where Spider-Man is not is not surrendering this problem to a higher authority or, to, you know, to somebody who who could take care of it. It's funny because even in like Venom Inc., in, which was a recent story from the Dan Slott run, which also like featured Ryan Stegman's art. Peter constantly is trying to kill the Venom symbiote in that book. And some people kind of like highlighted that as. I think we even talked about it on our show as like an odd thing for the character to do is just to have like a murderous mentality toward it. But like, really, he kind of should. He should. Yeah. Absolutely should. It's not a human being. And I know he knows it's sentient, but like there's a certain point where this thing keeps having offspring that are murderous. You got to kind of get rid of it. 
can I say one more thing about the distinction between uh, horror comics and and monster comics? Sure, yeah. And it's also the distinction between horror and monster stories. There's this thing that Cates does, you know, throughout the Venom series, uh, the ongoing Venom series, and in Absolute Carnage right now, where he kind of will take like an idea you know or introduce something new. Like in this Absolute Carnage issue, it's like there's an eerie grinding sound that the characters hear and they're not sure what it is. And he'll play with that idea for a page or two and then reveal it to be something so much worse or weirder than you ever would have thought. In this book, uh, I don't want to get into spoilers, but it turns out the sound is not what everybody thinks it's going to be. And when you find out what the sound is, you're like – oh God, this is going to be really bad. And so in the Venom series, he does this with things like that goofy planet of the symbiotes, which seemed like a really goofy idea to me at the start. But then over the course of the Venom series, it turns out, no, the planet of the symbiotes is like a billion symbiotes trying to hold down the the symbiote god Null, who wants to destroy all creation. And it goes from like being this kind of dopey, hokey, you know, monster story idea to being something truly horrific and cosmic. And I love that. And I feel like the Venom series does that continually well with that emphasis on actual human character, too. There's there's like a slight difference between like goofy and small minded and like epic and like out of this world minded, I guess is what I'm saying. Like a lot of artists tend to go, people won't believe that, so we'll make it slightly smaller, and it ends up being silly. But when really, oftentimes, you should go super grand and make it really, truly epic. I mean, if you made, like, Galactus 20 feet tall, he would be really stupid. But, like, <laughs> at 100-some feet tall, he looks just as ridiculous, but there's something really cool about that. And I feel like when reading this Venom series, I, you can kind of feel Kate's kind of grooving along with what other Marvel creators have recently done. You brought up how it in, incorporates a bit of Jason Aaron's Thor. And I think this this feels this Venom series feels in some ways like a response and to, to that Thor run and like a seizing of the license that Jason Aaron seized. Like this is how big and crazy we can get. And, you know, suddenly we've got symbiote gods and who knew that that was the thing I needed to get me to enjoy symbiote stories. <laughs> well, that's just it. It feels like the God Butcher story in a way. You know, it's like like that was like, let's just do Thor across all spans of time and go really crazy. with it. There's going to be a library on the entire universe. Like it's like every other page you get a bizarre new concept. And yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that's the thing I would most compare it to is like Jerry, the, the grand scale of Jason Aaron's stuff. Yeah, that's still ongoing and still just as thrilling. And and we're we're getting phrases like words, phrases like elder god. You know, like we're we're getting into like straight up Lovecraft stuff here. And it's so much more ambitious and arresting and exciting than maximum carnage or who is wearing the symbiote at any given time. Like, yeah, that's so old hat, like a new symbiote spawn. Like I always joke that like every new venom writer comes in and goes to the editor and goes, hold on a second. I got this great idea for a new venom story. Now, now stick with me here. What if the venom symbiote had a spawn? How about that? And for some reason, <laughs> editors keep greenlighting that story when they really should be laughed out of the room. You know, you know, that that I, is such a tame idea compared to what we get here. 
Can I just ask you one more thing before we really get into sure, absolute yeah. carnage? A question that has always come to me and that I've alluded to in this conversation, but that has always come to me when reading Venom and Carnage stories with a high body count, where I always wonder, even if Peter's not in a story, I always wonder, is this all somehow Peter's fault? Like, is this because he brought that costume back from the soup, from the Secret Wars that all these people died in Maximum Carnage? You, it seems to think think so, but like then, but then there's also like you know the Grendel symbiote, you know, was around back in the Vietnam War, and so in a way, as part of Kate's his run, it really seems to me, at least, as prominently featured as Spider Man is in this story, he seems really intent to kind of begin to sever the connection between Venom and Spider Man, and make Venom this guy that can exist very much on his own like apart from the Spider-Man legacy, but influenced by it. I don't know if you read it, but there's like that uh, Venom story that was takes place in Vietnam where like they found the Grendel symbiote that Rex had in this Venom series and, and Nick Fury's involved with it. And like, really, it's just got so much, you know, broader to the point that you don't feel quite as bad about Spidey. Are you laughing about Venom? I'm going to Venmo you some money, Dan. <laughs> Yeah, well, if if Donny Cates ever hears any portion of this, it's that Venmo needs to find its way in, into <laughs> into the books, right? Like, yeah. But anyway, I, I don't know. To respond to you, Spidey is somewhat involved, and I think he feels that responsibility. But like, I think it's kind of moved past him at this point in in a way that I think I would have balked at a couple of years ago because I've always been dying for Venom to just going back to go back to being one of Spider Man's rogues gallery. But the way that Kate has evolved him, it's like, oh, the only reason I felt that way is because so many other writers weren't actually seizing upon the opportunities that the Venom character presented. Exactly. The current Venom series, and and who knows if this absolute carnage issue yet is this way too. We haven't discussed it yet. Yeah. But the current Venom series feels to me like I literally passed a dude wearing a Venom t-shirt today. It had McFarlane's Venom on it while I was walking to the gym here in Jersey City. And the current Venom series seems to me everything that that McFarlane image on his shirt promised, but that the Venom comics never actually lived up to. I mean, this, this series is truly heavy metal. Like, I could just yeah. imagine him writing this to, like, you know, the heaviest of t rock tunes. And, you know, all the ideas are the coolest idea. Like, McFarlane seized upon the cool ideas, but couldn't really get there with the writing. And... You know, now you've got like Ryan Stegman, who's clearly emulating McFarland and starting to move, I think, into his own territory. Like he seems to be becoming, becoming an artist that is uh, he was inspired by McFarland, but is landing kind of in his own sweet spot. Yeah. Es especially in this issue where I think his Spider-Man finally comes to life in a way that's really independent of previous interpretations of the character. But like yes. Kate is also like supplying that like that rock music for Stegman to, you know. To to fly, to soar on enough about flying dinosaur X Men yeah. villains. I prefer uh, I prefer jazz, Dan. We've about <laughs> let's get into absolute carnage number one. So I guess to start off, let's talk about like the format of this book. I mean, it's an eight dollars and ninety nine cents comic. If you didn't buy some special variant or something, what did you think about? I mean, it's what sixty plus pages. What did you think about like, the pacing of this thing? How it was structured? Talk to me about it, Alex. Well, I, I bought the seven. I bought a seven ninety nine version. Oh, there I you go. Sorry, I, I was inflating but it by a dollar. But I also know there's like a director's cut, and I wasn't sure which was which. And 
when I went into the comic shop and actually picked it up, I thought, oh, okay, this is a beefy book loaded with content and not like a lot of the uh, the you know amazing spider-man beefy issues we've had lately it's loaded with one story you know it's not loaded with you know one 22 page chapter or 21 page I'm sorry I'm, I'm old and then a bunch of you know amusing or not amusing filler material this is this is you know this is like 60 pages of one story for eight bucks which mathematically you know works out to be a better deal than you know buying what three issues? At three ninety nine, sure, yeah. So great. So from that perspective, this book is worth your money if you enjoy the story. You know, it is a better deal than the average skittier comic. I will give it that. But then I, I guess it's time for us to reveal our cards, Dan. Story, art, everything here is first rate, top notch. My God, this! I thought this was one of the best Marvel comics I have read in I can't tell you how long. Pacing wise, it's just it just cooks like each chapter is like probably like what, 12, 15 pages and they they build and they're exciting and you don't know what's coming next. And every portent is paid off. It always feels like it's growing into something bigger. It just works. And my God, if only the movies were as good as this. <laughs> I know. As, I... as wild as this, as thrilling and unpredictable is this absolutely i mean like this like you mentioned each one is each chapter is kind of like a scene in a way like there is a kind of like standout scene but each one is so distinctly different you know we go from kind of like a personal battle to a, like a deli conversation to like a big horror you know brawl and uh, uh you know with some real chills in it like really scary stuff and you know you're getting a wide range of tones there's jokes and emotion and and horror each new part of it was my favorite part although I, I will come down and say the middle of this book is one of my favorite scenes I've read in a Marvel comic in ages I'm with you on that as well but you know what I just would like to add about that the th what what really strikes me about that that variety of moods throughout the book is that each one is not just like really well established each one is super inventive like the horror stuff in this book is never like stuff you've seen these symbiotes do before. There's a routine coming up with 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 maggots and and prisoners at the asylum that is not Arkham Asylum. <laughs> that is just truly horrifying. Right. It's like, you know, if you're going to build a set set piece, you might as well come up with something new to do in it. I always complain about, and when we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man issues, that, that I miss the kind of like management of the battles that used to take place in kind of like the Silver Age comics where Spider-Man kind of being like, I only have so much web material and things like that. And that's because like you got caught up in the details and whether or not Spider-Man had, it became a chess match, yeah. and, you know, in lieu of actually having a very inventive new idea. You, you know what I mean? Like at least at the very least you could get invested in the drama of the manipulation of powers. But now I feel like we don't get that and our set pieces in these books are often so like routine enough that mm -hmm. the, the, the writers make fun of them. But here it's like, I've never seen half of these things happen before, you know, like a fight on a train line, you know, you know, a fight in a, in a jail cell with maggots. I and mean, we're going to get into all that, but even just the kind of establishing these new things, the visual language of it all is super clear. You never are lost. And the new ideas allowed to sing in, in that regard too. 
Um, I spend a lot of time when reading current comics just trying to figure out what I'm looking at and, you know, and how this image and the next image is supposed to, like, capture, like, movement of a hero or villain or what have you. And, no, it's absolutely clear throughout this. So let's start with the first chapter uh, of this book. And each chapter kind of has its, like, own, you know, title to it. And I have to say the first one is my favorite, The Bleeding King. Sounds like a heavy metal album title, and it really conjures, you know, quite an image in in your mind, The Bleeding King. This is kind of Eddie explaining to Dylan his son slash brother slash whatever he is, because I think there's a big mystery coming down the pike to be revealed in regards to who Dylan is or what he is. We've got this, that, and then a confrontation between Venom and Carnage in the subway system. I think for me, the least interesting of the three parts of this book, but still, you know, a really great setup for what's to come. It's so committed to the the atmosphere. It's so committed to just this kind of ambient tension, the tension of being on the run, of being, you know, hunted by the cops. You know, it just it just has this feeling throughout that something terrible could happen at any moment. And then when it does, the, the stakes feel very high. But then when it does happen, when we do get the subway battle that you have, have mentioned earlier, it's you know, the, the big move that finished the big finishing move in that battle is is not necessarily a surprise. It's telegraphed. It's something you've seen before in some ways, in a way that, you know, a lot of this book is not. And it's a bit but of a the, cheat. It, it's not quite clear exactly how all that works out, but still it's epic. It, yeah. It's like epic and it's kind of you cringe reading it. You know, it feels it feels sacrificial and heroic and ugly and raw in ways that all just really match this this on the run desperate mood. Absolutely. And so like leading into that, like, you know, you get this kind of banter with Dylan and and Eddie where it's like, hey, kid, let me just tell you every nightmare you could possibly imagine is coming after you. And they go down to the subway and I thought, what a clever way to start off this book by referencing the first appearance of Venom ever from Mm -hmm. a web of Spider-Man where, you know, uh, you have this random hand push Eddie onto the train tracks, which is exactly what happens to Peter when, you know, he loses the suit and this mysterious spider senseless hand pushes him in front of the tracks. Now, obviously it was a woman's hand and it was intended that Venom will be a woman. And we never saw that, but like, it's clear that, Donny Cates is like already like thinking, you know, like how do I pay, you know, homage to, you know, uh, Venom's history and and kicking off this big scale event. And then we get the the killer of all doubles page splashes of Venom stopping the subway train. Oh, that is so badass. I mean, part of Venom's popularity is the splash page. Yes. You know, the the return of the splash page and the rise of Venom really happened at the same time. There's no way around that. And one thing I can say about Kate's, Kate's and Stegman's Venom series and this particular issue is that none of these splash pages are wasted. None feel like they're there just to have a splash page. Like they're all, you know, titanic mad action or visions that are just like tearing open some layer of Dante's Inferno and sticking your head in. Absolutely. I mean, the the kind of twisted nature of the bodiless Venom symbiote that morphs its way out of the crowd to stop the train 
and the way it's it's like hands, if you want to call them even that, like web out over the the front of the train as it's like fangs, like in a Joker's grin. Like mm-hmm. it is, it is terrifying. And even though this is our hero, you know, you, you really see it, sense the physical nature of this kind of demented specter. And, and you, you sense the dementia, you know, one thing that always seemed to me silly about a lot of the old venom splash pages and carnage va- splash pages and venom one liners and all that is the like kind of flexing muscle magazine, you know, aspects to them. The look what a badass WWE guy I am, yeah. you know, look to them. Whereas this is a monster out of control. Absolutely. And, and, and it's kind of funny too in its own way and it's in, in what you said the dementia of it like like one of the appeals i think of the venom character when he first came on was he kind of was funny in his own mm-hmm. way like he cracked jokes but you kind of sensed it wasn't like spider-man cracking jokes it was like that he was deeply mentally disturbed in his kind of humor and 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 that kind of comes out in the art here like like you were saying you know in terms of cracking jokes you know carnage was very much you know a kind of joker-esque character when he was first introduced, you know, Cletus Cassidy as a madman, he would make all kind of, you know, Joker humor. There's even like the, I don't know if you remember the, the carnage, maximum carnage postcards that he used to do where he would be like burning down different monuments around the country and, and making jokes and writing letters to like Jonah in blood. I don't know if you remember this at all. Oh, Um, very vaguely, very vaguely. I, I read half of that once. It's silly, but what did you think of the redesign of Carnage as we finally get his first big reveal here in in the kind of like Stegman's reinvention of the character? You know, we've got the dead, you know, Cletus Cassidy, like he's literally rotting inside of the symbiote. Uh, how do you think? How did you think so about the redesign? Like, like the guts are where where there should be guts. There's just a spinal column and then like a hip bones. Yeah. And then that 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 swirl on the on the forehead that has been showing up in the Venom series all along. Yeah, I, I just you know, truly truly a a terrifying vision, and we're moving further and further away from you know variations on the spider costume. I like that. Yeah, to echo what you're saying, I like that. You know, yes, we don't have any guts, but it it also seems like truly Cletus's body is just kind of along for the ride and, and carnage can do whatever he wants with it. If that mm-hmm. means like vivisecting his arm, you know, and shifting <laughs> no. it around, you know, we might as well, like the body is really only there just to cling on to, And, and this thing can take whatever shape it wants. So there's like those weird protruding elements from his shoulders. Like, I don't even know what part of the body that is that became that, y- you know, like, uh, it's like, Whatever, like I'm just slowly eating away at this corpse in here and, you know, I'll move it how I need to. Yes, it's like truly terrifying and an alien. And again, anything that moves us away from the, the you know, fitness dude muscle magazine aesthetic, you know, and towards like something actual alien and horrific, I am all for. And doubling down on that after this big fight, which ends with the, you know, the third rail, which is really telegraphed quite clearly earlier on, you know, Eddie is recovering and, you know, you, it gets even more alien in that like Eddie goes away. Like the venom symbiote takes over his body, puts him into a coma and starts to heal his brain. And you begin to ask Mm -hmm. yourself like how much of Eddie is truly left? Like if the venom symbiote symbiote is replacing him, you know, or fixing him up, what is he replacing him with? 
You, you, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like it's it's the whole thing of like Spider-Man from the Raimi movies when he shoots webbing. It's like how much of Peter Parker is being disposed all mm. over the city? You know, is he eating bagels all the time to carb up and <laughs> and and make sure there's more of him? You know, like at some point, does he get depleted? You know, I, I wonder that about Eddie. Like at what point is Eddie no longer left? Oh, God, he's like that that Greek ship and like the kind of philosophical conundrum where every year, like seven pieces of it are replaced. And after a century, you know, the whole ship's been replaced. Is it still the same ship? Yeah. Who knows? It's an interesting distinction. Yeah. The ghost ship Eddie Brock uh, (laughs) hitting the seas. I I think that that, you know, the the Cates's Venom series has implied for a while that the distinction between Eddie and Venom is is very vague, you know, at this point. Like there was there were a couple issues where Venom wasn't talking to him, right. but was just still inside him. And when Eddie's, you know, got mad or his subconscious was just clearly linked to it and Venom would respond. Even when it's a dog, you're like, who is really pulling the leash here? Yeah. You know, like the dog seems to there's even an issue where the dog goes off on his own journeys and adventures on his own. Is Eddie truly aware of this? And then there's the issue 11, which I call like the gaslighting issue of Venom, where it's like you realize all of this was a, a, you know, a a faint by the by the Venom symbiote or, you know, some kind of gaslighting. And yeah, you got to You kind of have to wonder, like how much is left of one or the other. And, and I mean, it makes sense, right? A story about a symbiote, you know, you might actually begin to work in what it means to have a codependent relationship. Well, yeah. And, and you're married, Dan, at some point, like sometimes you have ideas that are not original to your, the meat and matter of your mind, right? <laughs> you right. Know, but they seem to be coming to you. And sometimes I wear my wife as a costume, uh, that allows me superpowers. <laughs> And sometimes the mass murdering version of her must be stopped. <laughs> enough, 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 enough. Um, I am so sorry. So, but, but no, I, I think that all of that is implied and that Kate's is really digging pretty deep into that. Where does one end and the other begin stuff? And, you know, very smartly, doesn't spell it all out. That is horror. Horror is uncertainty about your own humanity. And, and, it, and it, it takes form in little ways that the audience might not even be aware of, like not to skip ahead, but there's this, you know, the scene in the deli, we see Eddie sitting there with sunglasses on and you wouldn't think, you know, anything about that. Oh, he's just trying to hide his identity. It's just his sunglasses until like halfway through the scene, those sunglasses were just the symbiote covering his eyes and they slink off of him, you know? Yeah, that revealing is a terrifying his, moment. Yeah, revealing his humanity in some way. But you're like, really, who is in control of that, you know, revealing that humanity? Like, it, it, is that even just a control mechanism? Clearly trying to elicit a response from Peter by doing that. And it's messed up. It's deeply messed up. Speaking of Peter, like the this, like, I, I mean, even I could say like this issue, it seems like, like each chapter of this was kind of devised as like an issue. And- you know, I yeah. guess it makes sense when you're pacing a 60-something page book to that you would, you know, you're a comic writer, you're used to writing 20 pages, you might as well just keep to that format. And I think it works pretty well here. Are, um, are they each 20 pages? I, they're, I think they're about each tw- like 20, 21 pages, yeah. With 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 no fat whatsoever. No, none, none at all. So we get the kind of 
I thought, a really clever introduction of Peter where he's living in apartment 616. So Had we known that before? Was that established over in Amazing? I don't really know. I think, if anything, it would be established in the Friendly Neighborhood book, which has kind of taken a more grounded approach sometimes to the the series. I'd have to double check. I'm a nerd, clearly, but not to that level that I've... In, in remember Peter's well, no, but I think address. we would have no, I think we would have noticed that. Absolutely. That would have been something that stood out. In a way, like getting back to my point I made earlier about Eddie being in his own universe, this almost seems to be like the moment that Eddie is reaching out back into the regular Marvel world to bring in Peter. And and everything about the book kind of changes. The color scheme changes. It like suddenly injects like saturated colors back into this world. The rain lets up a little bit mm-hmm. and we get some sun you know, uh, for a second. And, uh, you know, we, we see, you know, of all people, Randy, you know, answer Mm -hmm. the door and call out for Peter. And then I think probably one of the most iconic images of Spider-Man in Marvel comics end this chapter, Uh, this image of Spider-Man turning around, putting his suit on with the light coming through the window. I mean, talk about an introduction. It's a great, great image. It could be a poster. And what really struck me about it uh, on first read and even more now hearing you talk so much about, you know, how atmospheric this book is, how dark and stormy it is, the light coming through his window is sunlight. And like Peter is facing an entirely different kind of universe through that window, you know, and now he's going to be pulled back into this one. So they wind up, you know, at the diner during a rainstorm. Like it is literally sunny. It is literally sunny on the page that ends chapter one. First page of chapter two, it's a deluge again. Yeah. I mean, it's a little little bit brighter out. Like, that's the one hopeful thing. Just a little bit. It's it's the hair lighter. The first panel of of Spider-Man, the first panel of that second chapter is Spider-Man with his head in his hands saying – what is he saying? I hate symbiote stuff so much, which is just what Miles said when he got tangled up in all this in the earlier Venom issues. And it's how you feel. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I love that Peter acknowledges. So let's move on to the second chapter, my favorite chapter of this. The immediate thing that Peter seems to be saying is like, you know, symbiotes were one thing, but now you're bringing me God's and, you know, like monsters and all these things. Like, why is it that you always have to come to me with some extremely elevated thing that I just don't want to involve myself in? I'm sorry, man. Like all through this, I'm just wondering, Spidey, isn't this all your fault? I know. <laughs> I wish I wish that in this excellent, excellent chapter, in this really exciting, well-written conversation that Eddie Brock would make clear to Peter Parker – by the way, all the symbiote stuff has been on Earth long before. <laughs> this has nothing really to do with you, except for incidentally that we've met and you've worn you've worn it. We got to track down these codexes. Can we talk about tracking down the codexes? Sure. Well, this is a scene where Eddie Brock has to break it to Peter what it is the mission's going to be, 
And Peter's reluctant. He's annoyed. He has all of the objections that a fan might have reading a wiki or summary of this plot line. (laughs) He just doesn't want to deal with it. And then he gets drawn in as inevitably he will. And he gets a couple, you know, a couple moments of great Peter humanity and power and responsibility in this conversation that have been sorely lacking in his book, in his main book for quite a while. But that's, that's beside the point. So this codex idea, they've got to track down everybody who's ever worn venom and take back some like what some some leftover dna yeah that that so that this does not all get taken back to the hive it's all nonsense but it's a great excuse to get the whole band back together sure it's a great excuse like that's why it's an event you know exactly it's literally like and if we add this little detail now it's an event it's Um, it's a really simple idea that I can't quite summarize <laughs> because it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very much a, you know, a bit of Star Trek explanation for what we have to do to save the day that falls apart if you really think about it too hard, but it's beautiful comic book nonsense. And and it, and it really reduces like, you know, it, it complicates something that's really kind of like dumb in its simplicity is like, what does the bad guy Null want? Who I imagine at some point in the story is going to break free of his prison and be the big bad at the end of this whole thing. There, there's no way that Carnage fails at this and we don't get to see the Null like this sort of Damocles that's hanging over this whole thing. What does he want? Oh, he just wants to eradicate all life from the universe. And it's like, well, that's stupid, but the codex thing makes it interesting, especially if they go the route with it that they went in that one issue where they get the Flash Thompson codex and he turns back into Agent Venom for like five minutes. Like, I Mm -hmm. would love to see Venom get a few codex and cycle through the various personalities like Mac Gargan Venom shows up all of a sudden. Like I could imagine that being quite fun. Oh, I, I'm hoping we get something like that. But this scene is so well written, so well drawn. Although I do think Stegman cheats a little bit more than he should with the emotive Spider-Man eyes. That but one panel is a little too expressive for me. It's, it's a little spider emoji, but you know, it's like Spider-Man's funny, but he's not annoying. He's doesn't really want to deal with this, but he's not an irresponsible oaf. And it's like, this is the Spider-Man I want to read about. And he is empathic and delivering lessons without being like domineering. The other Spider-Man story I recently read that this reminds me of is the DeFalco Ron Friends backup in that in that one shot issue that just came out where they got Peter David to write, you know, to, to, sure, to script the, the, the plot of the guy. Yeah. The self-improvement issue. And you know, that is a, so the, the, the Falco friends backup and that is beautifully drawn, you know, Oh my God, friends, friends is just like expressive panels of Spider-Man taking down a bunch of thugs are, are so much fun. And at the end of that story, you know, it ends with Spider-Man talking to the villain and then they, they literally hug it out. I'm sorry to spoil that backup story for you, but they literally hug it out. And it feels like it's this Spider-Man that does that. There's a direct relationship between this character I'm reading in Absolute Carnage, that character in there. And I don't know that the kind of doofus in Amazing Spider-Man right now is the same guy. Absolutely. I mean, I, I read that self-improvement issue, which if you have if you're listening to this and you haven't picked that up, 
find a way to get it because I think Marvel didn't do a great job of advertising what that book was, which was like actually a really substantial chapter in Spider-Man's history. If you're a nerd of the history of the behind the scenes of Spider-Man and a really like truly wonderfully empathic tale. But I wrote to Ron after I read that and I told him like how much I loved the final panels of that, of how human Spider-Man mm-hmm. feels like he goes from being this kind of Avenger, like the guy points his gun at him and he turns around and you see this like Batman almost, you know, like character, like ready to attack him and, and take him down. But in the end, when the kid that he's saving tells him, you know, does the guilt ever go away? You know, Spider-Man suddenly is no longer a hero. He's just a dude and his body language changes and you can see the man behind the mask a little bit. And that's this guy. He is yeah. like a human being when confronted with this stuff. The jokes kind of go away. But also Ryan Stegman, I think he goes a little too far with his expressive in that one panel. But like for the most part, this Spider-Man is actually a dude wearing a costume. There's Absolutely. a physicality there that is like been really lacking for a long time. Absolutely. And I I don't I mean, I enjoy the kind of Bugs Bunny-esque aspect of Spider-Man, but it should at its at its at the character's best that is balanced with this empathic humanity. There's the bit where he takes down the goons who kind of burst into the shop and he, you know, webs them up and he tells them, like, tell the cops I said something funny. I have a reputation to uphold. It's like both human and really funny in its in its own in its own right. And that comes a little later in this chapter where uh, Stegman, you know, just okay, I'm going to talk one more thing about self-improvement. Sure. And in, in that self-improvement issue, you see the original plot that the guy who first had the idea for Spider-Man's black costume wrote and sent to Marvel. Marvel bought that plot and they liked the idea of the black costume. And DeFalco had him uh, at working as an editor, had the guy rewrite the plot. And then the, you get DeFalco's notes on it. Which are one brutal. Of the, Oh, they're, they're, he's just boring with an exclamation. <laughs> and sometimes after like the, the, the plot asserts and then Reed Richards does this, DeFalco just writes, why? <laughs> Which is a great question. My other but, favorite thing he says is, and maybe this is what you're getting to is what's happening in the art. Yes. He asks that a lot. And one, well, the thing I was actually getting to is related to that. He says at the beginning, we should start this with an action scene, you know, to establish all of this. But we have in this chapter, in this very thoughtful, well-crafted chapter, a totally gratuitous Spider-Man takes down some thug scene (laughs) just so there's something going on during the exposition right? and during this conversation they're having. And it's glorious. It's so much fun. Absolutely. It, it, It is truly out of nowhere. Like they just kind of appear from the writer's pen Right into this deli. But like it, 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 in a way, it's fun to way to reestablish a relationship between Eddie and Peter. I mean, my first Amazing Spider-Man comic was 375, where they make their kind of pact to no longer fight each other. And it's a weirdly that that pact has held up for as long as it has, because it really has. They haven't really been, you know, hero and enemy since then. They've had their spats, but... Never truly has he been a Spider-Man villain since that issue. And here it's kind of reestablished. Like, we don't see eye to eye necessarily, especially when symbiote shades are covering your face. But, you know, <laughs> they, can, they can work together in, in some regard. And, I mean, there is such a clear distinction between 
the these characters in the scene from writing, but even just physicality. Like Spider-Man is big and expressive and moves around in his seat, and you can tell he doesn't want to sit down. He much be much more comfortable sitting on the yeah. ceiling. Whereas Eddie yeah. never moves the whole scene. He is just stuck in that chair. Oh, no, absolutely. You can tell Spider-Man's a little spazzy, a little nervous, a little antsy. It's all it's all very, very well done. Uh, it's it's just he feels like a truly distinctive individual. I would read Kate's Spider-Man now. I know he's on Venom for the long haul. I know his favorite character in Marvel is Spider-Man. I would not be surprised if he ultimately ends up being our next Spider-Scribe. You know, it, let's if, say, Nick Spencer doesn't write the title. I know he was my dream pick. If he's not on it for 10 years, I could easily see Donnie stepping in. So we go from this scene to the scene with the maker, who I think is a bit of an ambiguous uh, uh, villain. I mean, he was really fun back in the ultimate days where he was taking on the, the, the ultimates and killing off everybody at the pen of uh, Hickman. I'm, I'm kind of dubious about who he is in this world, but I kind of like that Donnie seems to recognize that. And we start the scene off with, you know, Rock and Kate's, ma- you know, and not Kate's, and the maker making a deal that seems very much to Venom's loss. Like, we're just setting up another story somewhere 20 issues down the line in Venom where the maker is the next big bad. And mm-hmm. we'll figure out who this guy is. But what I, made me laugh about this scene and just to piggyback on how well Spider-Man's written is, Peter comes in and he's like, oh, you're an alternate Reed Richards? I trust you implicitly. And it's like, well, that is so Spider-Man. <laughs> I, I love how, you know, I, I, I've always thought that the maker's helmet was in some ways meant to evoke H.R. Geiger's alien design. Oh, 100%. But it's never done so as well as when Stegman draws it. Like, and and when Stegman draws it, suddenly Reed Richards' power, power set is creepy as hell. Absolutely. You know, got that alien head you've got some kind of tail going on sometimes and then he can oh man this, this is a scary dude and you know I've, I've always thought that it was some failure of imagination or power assignment or something that they gave the funny power set to reed richards <laughs> you know <laughs> they gave him the plastic man power set and he's like this joyless dude so you know i'm so happy that miss marvel has it now because you know she actually is fun with it but to use it for horror is really really exciting and the maker shows up continually in the current ongoing Venom series, and he's creepy as hell. I really love it. Well, it's funny. Right before you said that, I was thinking exactly that, that like he, here is a guy that is untethered from like Reed Richards kind of stubbornness to like express his powers at all times. Right. Richard likes to make every, everybody comfortable by just being a normal looking guy. But this guy has no qualms about that. So what makes it so creepy, right, is you never see his head connected to his body. It's always on like a 10-foot extension of his neck. This guy is not worried about how you feel about him because he knows he's got the edge on you. And he can say blanketly to Eddie, like, you know, I'm your only shot here. So, like, you're not going to like what I have to tell you down the line, but you don't have an option. So, like, good luck. And, you know, to the point that he pulls out a giant, like, arm-sized needle and is like, I'm going to need some blood from this child and you're going <laughs> to give it to me. You know, uh, you know, I'm not even going to think about it. So, yeah. So, you know, they bring in Dylan and out of nowhere, Spider-Man seems to have just grasped Normie Osborn 
you know, who still had part of the carnage symbiote in him. Yeah, that suddenly Norman Osborn is suddenly Normie. I'm sorry, the tiny Osborn, the the what was it? Goblin childy. <laughs> yes. The goblin childy ha- is among us. And I, I did feel like. Okay, we need at least a panel or even just one caption explaining why or how he talked the Osborns into this, into letting him take the kid. Yeah, that's weird to me because Harry doesn't know that Spider-Man is Peter Parker anymore, correct? I don't think so. Yeah, so he just – did Peter go over there and be like, can I have like a day date with my godson? Like (laughs) – Trust me, I won't get him involved in any elder god bullshit. Like, <laughs> you know, like, uh, he's going to be fine. I imagine this is only like three weeks in Marvel time since he was literally, you know, the the, the goblin child. E. E. Yes, we have to make sure we pronounce that E at the end. But yeah, it is weird. And then, I mean, this is a whole thing that I started on Twitter and found its way actually to Donnie Cates is that. Like, when did Eddie and Normie learn that Peter was Spider-Man? You know, Eddie, I think you could easily know Prize as being an off-panel thing, right? He gave, you know, Peter the Venom symbiote back in issue 800 and then got it back from him and probably learned who was, on, you know, in the costume. Yeah, right? the, symb- the symbiote would know. Right. But Normie, that's not the case, right? Like, Normie gets the Carnage symbiote from... Norman. So maybe that's how he learns. But there's a scene in issue 800 where, you know, Spider-Man is saving Normie from Norman and whispers to Norman, like, you know, clearly whispering that, like, don't mess with his godson, you know. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly now Normie knows this. And and Peter is openly talking to, you know, like, you know, as Spider-Man about his godson which has a whole series of ramifications. Like we're trusting this sometimes psychotic child to keep your secret to Harry Osborn and all the other associated people. It's, it's a big oversight in my eyes. Did you get an answer? I did. So Donny Cates has his own podcast with Ryan Stegman and they asked this, the first question they asked and he just said, oops. And (laughs) which is a nice admission. And he said, you know, I typically rely on the editors to catch this stuff, right? And I was relying on, you know, Nick Lowe to catch it, and he just didn't. So then he said, you know, if you can come up with a no prize and a a solution for this, I will send you a signed copy of Absolute Carnage number one, which is about as, like, nice as you could get from a creator. Yeah, because a lot of creators won't admit that. Do you have a solution? I do. I mean, my solution is... Right. There's the Carnage USA story and even this story that acknowledges that there's a sort of hive mind that Carnage has. And even in the web of Carnage stuff leading up to this story where you get the kind of like the cult of Carnage stuff, it's this hive mind. So like my idea is that like when Normie Osborne put on the Carnage symbiote, he became part of the Carnage hive mind of Norman Osborne. And in that process, learned that Peter became Spider-Man. It doesn't make a lot of sense as to like why he went after Aunt May and acted as though he didn't know why he was going after Aunt May. 
But oh, he could have he could have put it all together afterwards. I'm sure being being taken over by the symbiote is probably disorienting. Right. <laughs> Good point. And you can no prize like why Peter was whispering about the godson thing in front of Normie because Peter might not know that Normie knows and he's still whispering in front of him. So okay, but can you explain how the other characters, you know, during that Goblin Child arc? knew that Goblin Child had an E on the end of it. Because, I mean, surely, like, the Goblin Child didn't write this down. No, Like, the Goblin no. Child's just saying it out loud. You can't hear that E. I mean, I think what ends up happening is that people realize it's too ridiculous to just say Goblin Child. It makes much more sense to, some for some reason, tie it into Old English. They just kind of understood that, like, Child <laughs> E was, was, was the, the way to go. This is like the pizza shoppy chain in Kansas City that I grew up with. Ye old carnage is ye old carnage. Except it's carnage. We we've been carnage. we've been mispronouncing it this whole time. It's actually French. Oh, it's uh, the sixty-two goblin child. <laughs> yeah, right. That's it. That's it. Yeah, it's it's from that different universe, the Shakespeare universe, the sixteen twelve. Thank you, Dan. This has, been, this has been illuminating. <laughs> there you go. See, I, I'm just clearing things up for everybody. So yeah, that was a weird note in this scene. Have I thought about this too much? Probably. Have some editors thought about this too little? Definitely. <laughs> now, I have another question about this because you've thought about all this stuff much, much more than I have, which is when we get down to, I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead to the next chapter, the true horror chapter, like like the almost like universal horror chapter, you know, with the the Batman horror chapter, with sure. the, the way Ravencroft is drawn, the wonderful, wonderful, you know, fence and rain and thunder. One and of these the days, the artist Arkham. is just going to slip up and accidentally write Arkham uh, on the front total of it. Yeah. Arkham, but it's, it's just so well done. I don't care. Sure. You know, so their mission, and, and by the way, that, that middle chapter does an excellent job of building up to the revelation of this mission, even though you as the reader probably feel it coming, Right. you know, that they've got to break into not Arkham and go get Norman Osborn. And so that's already great stuff. And, and the, the, the second chapter builds up to a great silent ending where Carnage and Spider-Man both realize what it is they have to do. And the maker has a sly, evil grin that is just just as scary, I think, as some of the Carnage splashes. Uh, so when they get to Norman Osborn, when we see Norman making a full Joker face, finally, do you see anything in this issue that connects to your theories about what's going on over in Amazing and Kindred or Shush or whatever we're calling the the overvillain who for 27 issues has not drawn the attention of the hero? Not particularly. I mean, if you're implying that Norman is in some way involved, I don't necessarily see that. I mean, the smile is similar you know, I think it is interesting that Harry Osborne is noticeably absent from this issue, whether by like writer omission or even like what I'm implying is if editorial said you cannot show Harry Osborne, who has been in those 27 mm. issues never seen in this. Oh, that would explain run. that would explain why we don't see Spider-Man getting normie. Exactly. So like if we're not allowed to touch Harry Osborne because he is kindred or whatever, like that's the only weird deduction that I could make, you know, it's like he was told that he was off, you know, you know, off the table 
And, you know, so we have to fudge that a little bit. I don't know that I believe that, but if, you know, want to keep poking at my Harry Osborne theory as my, my B theory for who Kindred is, like that would certainly be like an interesting, it's like finding an image in the negative space. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. especially after what you've revealed about, you know, Kate's engagement with, you know, kind of what the minutia of the current spider office continuity. Right. But then you can't really draw that conclusion because he also counted on them to catch the normie thing. Exactly. And they didn't. So it's like, you know, how how far do you really want to extend your imagination about this all powerful editorial arm that is con- controlling these things? Please forgive one more side note before sure. we get back to, to absolute carnage. But, you know, when I was just kind of presenting that question to you, I, I mentioned that ASM 27 comes out this week. We've had Kindred around since, you know, the first issue, since, since, since Spencer's first issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And I just do not have the energy to invest in trying to tease out who a mystery villain is if the hero, after 26 issues, doesn't even know that hit, that mystery villain exists. Something yeah, the, he's is way like, off. He that is speculates about that he exists. But yeah, yeah, it is. It that is. is Sticking us around. I'm sorry, man. A hundred percent it is. I think you put it when you were texting me about this. That's longer than the than the Tom DeFalco Ron Friends run. <laughs> that is longer than their run. And we can't actually see Kindred take action. Come on. Yeah, it is kind of baloney. It is kind of baloney. You know, I think that's an apt question to ask regarding this book, because one of the things like in this final chapter that really shocked me about this story was, I mean, yeah, we got Spider-Man's inclusion in, in this book, but like bringing in the Norman Osborn carnage stuff, it really kind of like for a series, it's been so Venom focused and really has kind of done a lot of work to separate Venom from Spider-Man, this really does feel like more of a follow-up in many ways to issue 800 of Spider-Man than, like, I ever expected it would be. Like, this is very much in Spider-Man's world. Very much. This feels more of a follow-up to that than than Amazing Spider-Man has felt. Absolutely. So, like, what do you think about this kind of, like, I, I was very dubious about the way Norman was left at the end of the slot run. Like I think I said to at the time that I felt like that was a great way to close the door on Norman. So that when we got that epilogue of him, like being crazy as Cletus in jail, I was like, that's kind of disappointing. Like I was kind of ready for him to just be either dead or gone or buried. But I have to say like this writing of it is really interesting because in a way Norman seems like he really is dead and he's just kind of Cletus Cassidy now. Yeah. I don't know. I just was wondering as I was, I was asking myself what seems like an opposite question. This seems like the opposite of the question I ever would have thought to ask when reading absolute carnage, which was, do I have to know too much Spider-Man continuity to make sense of this? (laughs) In a way you do. Like, yeah, you actually do. People who are reading the Venom run might be like, wait, what the hell? You know, like if I'm not reading Spider-Man, this is a wild divergence from Norman Osborn. You know, even just visually, like he looks more akin to Greg Capullo's Joker than than Mm -hmm. anything else, which really kind of made the connection between like what Stegman is doing. I don't know if you read the Batman Capullo stuff, but like that book is so visually inventive. Stegman is on on that level for me now. And I know like I read the the script for Absolute Carnage number one. And in the script, it says of this moment between where Spider-Man finally sees Norman revealed 
that it was supposed to look like Norman Rockwell's interpretation of Carnage or whatever. And, <laughs> and you can see it. It's almost like gentlemanly and and yeah. kind, but covered in blood. And to me, that's one of the most striking images in the book is this kind of total reinvention of Norman Osborn as Cletus Cassidy. Very much. And the kind of corresponding horrific image, you know, that that kind of concludes this chapter as we get, you know, carnage and various other carnages or carnage lights or whatever they are, the carnet jets, the carnet jets. (laughs) I love it. We're keeping it. (laughs) You know, sw- you know, coming after uh, Venom and Spider-Man is, you know, it's a cliche now to have Spider-Man's costume grow tattered over the course of a battle. But, you know, to to get to Norman, this adventure in, in Ravencroft demands, you know, a lot of fighting. It demands some, uh, you know, a great sequence of like feats of spider strength and will, you know, to get through a wall or a door right, or whatever. Right, right. It but Spider-Man's mask gets torn. And so it's kind of hanging off his face a little bit. His chin and mouth are sticking out and the mask is tattered and kind of stringy in a way that very much suggests the way the Venom symbiote's mouth, you know, kind of hangs on itself or, you know, the kind of way the carnage symbiote seems to be just kind of very loosely hanging over the corpse or whatever is left of, of uh, whoever it's on in a way that is really scary. I think it works because of just how physical Stegman's, you know, portrayal of Spider-Man is at all times. Like even yeah. in the deli scene when he's punching and kicking the guys against the wall, you know, the, the costume ripples and moves on his body in a way that like doesn't look like he's just a naked dude with a color printed on his skin, you know. Um, and so like suddenly when it's torn away, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And, you know, even just the Venom symbiote like enveloping Eddie Brock's face it's not drawn mm-hmm. flatly. It, it is a rounded thing. And I don't no. know if that's a like invention of modern colors or the way that Stegman is drawing it, but it really like changes the way you feel about that, that, that character. Very much so. But what I, what I just found so intriguing and, and, and sometimes, and even a little bit unsettling about the way the, the spider mask is, is it just becomes clear as you're reading this and looking at these pages that like the Spider-Man suit itself is in some ways like this thing that inhabits Peter and that Peter inhabits and that is not that dissimilar in some ways from these symbiotes. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it obviously it humanizes the the man inside of it, which makes the cliffhanger at the end of this, you know, issue so much more desperate, right? We've got this great sequence where Spider-Man webs up his fists and pounds into the wall to try to break them out of there. And he's unsuccessful, you know, for as strong as he is. And they're, le- they're legitimately cornered and they're just two human beings in costumes facing, well, carnage, but like real true carnage coming right at them. You were referring to that sound earlier. And I think nothing sells the threat more than that alluded to sound. And oh, that's such this, a good sequence. This maggot sequence, which I think we should talk about pretty, mm. uh, pretty quickly here. Yeah. Go to the maggots. Oh, go to the maggots. So like, you know, this this sequence is really terrifying, but like it's all about the pacing of this, right? Like we get each beat of this story very well laid out, right? We've got Carnage walking down this aisle, like it's almost like old boy style, you know, like this hallway. Oh, very sequence. much, yeah. yeah. You can see this is one tracking shot. Absolutely. And he like tears open his body cavity of his chest he pulls the maggots out. Then we're shown the maggots. 
Then we're shown him like throwing them one at a time into these cells and the people screaming. And then he uses the explosions of each shells to divide up, like to get rid of the, like to create like artificial gutters between these images of the cell doors blowing open as carnage walk past them. And then the symbiotes come rushing out. It's like, wow. I mean, that's how you use two pages effectively to sell a big moment like this. I mean, he mm-hmm. must have known he had something special here and was like, this is worth spending those two pages on. Oh, absolutely. It is. It is a horrifying image. It is terrifying. And it is, I keep saying horrifying and terrifying. And I never found Carnage and Venom horrifying or terrifying. I found some of those stories intense, you know, maybe more intense than, you know, Spider-Man tangling with the black fox. But <laughs> not horror. And, you know, and I, I want to get skip back to that distinction between horror stories and, and monster stories. And this a lot of Carnage and Venom stuff seems to me like, you know, about the monster story level of an Alien versus Predator sequel. This current Venom series and this absolute Carnage book is like at the level comics wise of like the original Alien movie. Oh, for like, sure. This is like the horrific in- imagery is built up to surprising and shocking. It's not gratuitous. It's just horrifying. And I, I can't praise this enough. What's interesting about that comparison with Alien is what makes Alien so great. And like, I don't necessarily love the design of the monster when it's fully revealed in in that in that movie. But you care about each of the people that it's going to take out, and you believe in the stakes of like the violence of their deaths. And like, I know we haven't had any major deaths in this book yet, and I'm sure they're coming. Right? It is a book that is teased. A, a number of like very bad things coming down the pike, but even something as simple as like John Jameson falling over in the cell mm-hmm. and like having the carnage, like it looks like his tears are made of carnage symbiote that are just like pouring yeah. out of his brain in some way. Like John Jameson might be dead. And I don't know, like uh, I'm terrified about that. And I think these things are coming down the pike and I believe that these people are going to die and really be dead in this book because there's no coming back from this horror. And I believe that Eddie and Peter are both, you know, as they're being harrowed by all of this horror, they are going to be, to be tested and pushed in ways that a lesser story can't test and push them. You know, we don't remember like if, if Ripley, if Sigourney Weaver in the original Alien had started as a badass, like she wouldn't be nearly as memorable. If she'd started as somebody who inhabits this horrific universe is what I mean. Obviously, these characters are already badasses. Right. She has to bring herself to the level of that horror universe to survive. And it's just so interesting seeing Peter pushed into this situation. Like this is a much, much scarier situation than that brouhaha in Central Park. Absolutely. Well, actually, you know, speaking of the brouhaha in Central Park from the Hunted storyline, you know, we get this bit with Peter here where he tells Eddie not to kill anyone because they're mm-hmm. in these carnage symbiotes and they're still, even though they are like death row inmates or whatever they are in, in, in Arkham slash Ravencroft, he still had some empathy for them. And I, I have to admit a little bit of an eye roll because I'm just so tired of that trope. You know, I know it's a part of his character. I don't really want to spend a whole story exploring whether or not Peter's going to kill anyone or not, because we did that in Maximum Carnage as well. Do you think that we're going to focus on that story element? Like, will Peter be able to kill or not? I 
doubt it. I think they tend to just throw that in and kind of write around it because if not, you have to face the fundamental problem, you know, of having Venom inhabit Spider-Man's universe that I keep alluding to, which is if Peter has to tell Venom when they're together, don't kill anyone, he knows Venom's out there killing people. And that is what Peter can't countenance. The whole thing falls apart. Right. He can't even handle it when he's dating Black Cat that she's going and stealing things when he's not watching her, much less his, you know, current anti-hero partner going out and murdering people, you know, that's you know, why the, the Punisher team ups are always so weird. The, the current uh, Daredevil series is doing something really interesting. I forget who, who is writing it. I think but, it's you know, Daredevil, I think so. Yeah. Daredevil's yeah. accused of murder. You know, every, every time there's a new Daredevil series, there's always a big new idea with it. And in this one, it's Daredevil murderer. You know, and it looks like he's probably been set up, but I, I've only read like the first two issues. But there's so a guy Daredevil beats up dies in the hospital. And the doctor who was treating the man, you know, Daredevil goes to confront the doctor, asking what's going on. And the doctor talks about how I've treated many people you have hit, you have beat up. And it's very clear that you always know exactly how hard to hit them and hit them at exactly where they can take it and what they're going to recover and not have permanent damage. And I don't know that I've ever seen that Daredevil makes this effort addressed before in the comics. Mm -hmm. You know, the comics continually have Daredevil going down to that little crappy bar and throwing people through the window. <laughs> right, right. But they've never established that, you know, he uses his heightened senses to be sure he does no permanent damage. And that is such a cool, interesting idea that I'd love to see, like, greater engagement in more of these Marvel books with not just pay lip service to the morality of all this violence, you know, like is happening here like right. with Peter. Hey, you're not killing those guys, are you? Okay. You know, I, I, that, that's not enough. I, I'd like it to see it more fully worked into the character. And you know what? In that, that one shot we were just talking about that, what is it called again? With the DeFalco friend story? Oh, uh, self-improvement. The self-improvement one shot actually, you know, gets into that. Peter finds a nonviolent solution. And granted, you can't find a nonviolent solution beneath, you know, in the bowels of Ravencroft when all of these symbiotes are coming at you. <laughs> but I, I, I would just appreciate some deeper engagement with those ethics rather than just have them, you know, mentioned in passing to excuse Peter's teaming up with a sociopath. It's like if you're drowning in the middle of the ocean and someone throws you a lifesaver and you're like, you know, I don't really believe in like polluting the ocean with plastics. You're like, this is the wrong time for that. You need to survive. You know, like we can deal with that later. <laughs> that is beautifully put. And one other thought is where as I'm wandering around the Marvel Universe and bringing in other examples, did you know that that, that Thieves Guild storyline in Amazing had serious consequences over in Champions? I had no idea. Yeah, it does. They have a whole – that's a whole several issue arc about Nova's stolen helmet. Oh, Wow. Well, that's very interesting. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, and it just it just feels has that same that stirred that same feeling in me that this issue did on occasion, where I feel like, huh, the things that happen in Amazing matter more in other books than the matter in Amazing. <laughs> it's it's certainly true. I mean, I feel like in some ways we are moving back towards that more cohesive Marvel universe. Like I think Sobolski has done a great job at kind of like bringing back a lot of that old feeling and bringing in like some big hitting creators again. I mean, I don't know if you're reading house of X or powers of X, 
but it's no, like, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up like the trade or something eventually. Cause it sounds so good, but I, I have a don't ask, don't tell policy with X-Men continuity. I just can't. I'm the same way, but like I'm reading this for the first time I'm reading X-Men as an adult and not like hitting the snooze button. It's, it's funny though. Amazing Spider-Man still seems to almost get like a pass, you know, it's amazing to me that we've not really figured out like how that book works in modern Spider-Man. And I don't want to get into a whole other ta- tangent because I, I, I honestly will in discussing thought uh, balloons. But like, I think that is the thing that killed Spider-Man to get removing hmm. the thought balloons, you know, because I think it takes a really talented writer like Kate's. And I don't think that any writers on Spider-Man have been lacking in talent, but like Kate's here really indicates like what's going on in those thought balloons without having to use them. And and that's you, really you, hard. You mean more not not literal thought balloons. Yeah. But you just mean like narrative captions in the first person from the perspective of who we're reading about. Right. But I, I think and, removing thought balloons, I don't care what form it takes. I think people are re- more reluctant to get into the narrative cap- captions than they were with getting loose with the thought balloons. And well, the interior life of Spider-Man to me is the most important part of that book. And here I felt the implications of the interior life of Spider-Man were very evident based on good writing and great artistry. Even as he's not the narrator. Right. Exactly. But yes, I, I, I will second what you said and then just add, just second something else you said earlier, as long as we're here kind of bagging on amazing, which I feel bad about. Cause no, cause I like it by any means. Yeah. But you know, that daredevil book I mentioned champions, venom, this, each of them have, a driving concept and like driving stakes behind them. Amazing. Does not Yeah, it doesn't. There's no, there's no, I do not know what the pitch for that book is. I couldn't pitch it to someone yeah. either. And maybe the pitch is Spider-Man does not need that. And maybe the pitch is this is going to be like, you know, like the average issue of, Sp- of amazing right now. It's going to be like the average issue of Spider-Man, you know, in the seventies or eighties, you know, before all these big events, right. you know, where this is just, here's what's going on with Peter this week. It doesn't feel like that either. No, it feels like somewhere in between and it's not hitting it. And it's, I think it's because it's decompressed. You could do that when your story was complete every month. Anyway, amazing Spider-Man, everybody come back for the main show where we talk about that. Come back and meet the mischievous one. I'm just available. So available Alan Churstall. Let's give our final grades on this. Where does this sit for you? Okay, this is an $8 comic book that I am happy to award a straight-up no-joke A. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It is an A for me. We've given out what? I think we've given out three or four A's in the history of Amazing Spider-Talk. And it feels a little bit of a cheat because it's not an issue of Amazing Spider-Man or Superior Spider-Man. But to me, this is like in that like... Hall of Presidents of of <laughs> comics discussed on the show. Although, oh my God, although Donald Trump is also in the Hall of Presidents, so what can I, you know, what can I no, say? But just imagine symbiotes taking over the Hall of Presidents. <laughs> just horrifying. I feel like you have a Marvel pitch right there. Yeah, this this is this is a great issue, and it's following up a pretty great Venom run. I would give the first Venom trade maybe an A minus. It's very strong, but not as strong as this. This, I think, is the best work from these guys. And then the issues of Venom after that that I read, you know, are probably between A minus and B range, most of them. Mm-hmm. 
I skipped the Venom War of the Realms, but other than that, I read I read all the recent Venom series. Well, uh, I skipped it too. <laughs> Sorry, Cullen Bunn. I imagine that they're the Venom symbiote comes back in this issue. He says because of like magic. I guess that was probably there. I'll read it someday. I I didn't need it necessarily. This episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue, while also getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. Dan, thanks to our patrons of Patreon, because without them, we would have never gotten that awesome review. But fear not, listeners at home. We are going to quickly transition to our review of Absolute Carnage number two with guest excellent Xavier Mendoza. Enjoy our review of Absolute Carnage issue number two. Let's talk about Absolute Carnage number two. I, I thought the first issue was... One of the best Marvel comics I've read in a great deal of time. Did you share a similar thought? Absolutely. I kept thinking about all these event comics and how they immediately start with the biggest scope possible. They just like, okay, issue one, this whole city is going to explode and that's going to be the inciting incident. And I just like, you get tired of that because they introduced like 20 Avengers all coming up to deal with it. This one was so toned down and, and just like character driven it's just peter and eddie just walking around like trying to solve a little bit of a mystery and that just felt so refreshing and different and i i kind of wish more event comics would take a step back and do something like that like less spectacle more characters well this book kind of like goes in the opposite direction of that do you agree like issue two is kind of like now we're in a marvel event proper issue two it's trying to immediately boost up that scope, like, and I feel like the escalation wasn't gradual enough. It just kind of goes from a scene where it's, you know, Eddie and Peter against the world to suddenly, oh, this is a global problem. This is everywhere. And it's, it just felt like that it, it happened too quickly. You, you didn't get to see enough of the time where this thing was ramping up and I, that that was a little bit of a turnoff, but I still am excited to see where it's going. Yeah, we're going to get to all that. I mean, I think I know exactly the page turn that you're talking about. And I turned the page and I was immediately dispirited. So, I mean, I think it, it's funny because the first issue I felt like was really kind of like, you know, whisked out with a lot of pomp and circumstance. And you get these beautiful title pages with like these great titles like The Bleeding King and things like that. And you get this really sense of gravity there and that this isn't just any other story. And here I felt like even just the missing title page of that, like I know they didn't break this book into chapters, but I was like missing that level of like, Hey, we hired a, like an artist to put together this title page for us to creep you the hell out. We're just into it. Like it's any other comic. And Despite its event level scope, I felt like this read more as just like any other Venom comic that I've read with a kind of nebulous, overpowered super force against our heroes. I think something they could do going forward is establish exactly how strong Carnage is, how many people are like with him at this point, because it seems a little ill-defined. He just says, I'm a god now. And then it's like, okay, well, we know about those. Like Thor is a guy. 
are you that or or something less or something more? How many bad guys does Carnage have exactly with him? Because you keep seeing all these big group shots of all these random people with the the swirly spiral thing on their face and and you just kind of wonder like is it a couple dozen people that we just keep seeing over and over again or is carnage like infected like half the city at this point or or is it is it web of shadows now i just want like if you're gonna ramp up the scope define exactly what that scope is so it's easier to get a hold of the stakes and understand exactly how how much is happening in the story. Yeah, we're we're calling these characters the Carnageettes on the show. Uh, they're like these weird four-armed, like dog creatures. I don't know how threatening I should find them because they seem to be dispatched fairly easily. You know, you've got Miles taking down like dozens of them here, and it's only really when the Carnage propers come into the play that things really get threatening. But like you're right, I, I, like is he a god? What to what extent do his powers, you know, extend? The heart of this issue really kind of seems to move away from the Venom Spider-Man conflict, and really, strangely, from like Venom himself. This has been a much more Spider-Man oriented comic than I thought it would be. But like the heart of this issue seems to be in this like competition for being the titular absolute carnage you know, between Norman slash Cletus and the carnage that is currently occupying the corpse of Cletus. And I just don't know how interested I am in that fight, you know, Uh, because Norman seems like such a nebulous entity to me. And then I don't really know who this carnage symbiote is. If it is, you know, eschewing the personality of Cletus, like he's the serial killer, right? So like, what is this symbiote? Oh, okay. So, the Grendel symbiote is a big piece of knoll that became a dragon, got frozen on Earth. Eddie thought it out, blew up like 99% of it. Then they took that 1%, stuck it to Cletus's corpse after he blew up during Venom, Venomized, I guess. It reanimated him. His personality was so strong, he was able to like control it. Did it spawn another red symbiote that took over Norman in the prison in issue one? Like... Because Carnage's original symbiote is gone at this point, like just flat out gone. It's dead. So I don't know what this this red symbiote across Norman and the Carnageettes and even like John Jameson. I don't know exactly what that is. It might just be the Grendel spreading itself out, kind of like that Web of Shadows game where Venom just took over New York, I guess. Something that's always been like kind of confusing about Carnage is whether or not the symbiote has a mind of its own or not. Some writers kind of interpret it like Cletus's mind was just so demented that it, that the symbiote just like copied it over. And it's essentially just a clone of his mind, like superior Spider-Man style in a symbiote body. And that's why he refers to himself as I instead of we by that token, why every time someone has a Carnage symbiote, they act just like Cletus. Other writers have kind of tried to make it seem like the Carnage symbiote, like it had a chance at not being as crazy as it is, and it's kind of like a victim now, and it's like, oh, it got stuck to such a horrible person. It could have been something so much more, like during that whole Superior Carnage arc, they kind of play with that idea a little bit. I I had always thought that the Carnage symbiote was kind of continuing on as like a form of Cletus Cassidy, but then you've got a guy who actually seems to have the mind of Cletus Cassidy 
I don't know. I don't know that this, there's enough drama here to really focus on this when I'd much rather focus on the battle between Venom and Carnage. Like, that's the more interesting fight for me. Even from conception, like, Carnage was always kind of a Venom villain, like, more so than a Spidey villain. He, like, Spidey, like, fought him once, went, nope, I don't feel like doing that again, and then went to go get Venom, and then it's just been their rivalry ever since. But then you get weird moments where, like, the Cletus, you know, let's just say Carnage Prime, rather, is referring to him as Osborne, you know, and it, it just seems very strange to me that there's this tussle over the Cletus identity, which seems nebulous in the first place and already minor mired in all kinds of continuity minutia that I you're explaining to me. And it's going in one ear and out the other because whatever, just have Carnage show up in a comic and I'll I'll accept it to a certain degree. It's unfortunate, I feel like, for this book because it, it just starts asking these questions that I just maybe it's just that I wasn't interested in them. And if, and and I guess your mileage may vary because I thought the first book was so simple in its premise. Like it seems so clear to me, like what we were going to be reading about. I guess it's not that much of a complication, right? That there could be these two carnages fighting over this, but the personalities just don't seem all, all of a sudden they don't seem totally clear to me. Like who is this threat and what are his goals? And how does the carnage symbiote on Norman like complicate those things? Like what at the end of the first issue, you have the carnage symbiote or whatever, the Grendel symbiote, you know, reaching his hands out and the tendrils are, are, are wrapping around Norman in a, in a carnage, new carnage symbiote. And it, it's, it's inherently giving the idea of puppetry, right? Like, He's controlling this character. It's like all these other people are just mindless dolls that just do whatever Cletus says. They're just monsters with no personality and no no purpose, right? Like essentially like all of the the actual like named characters that like matter on Cletus's side are just the gang from Maximum Carnage again. Uh, Two of them condensed into one character, weirdly enough. They brought back Demo Goblin with some kind of like blood sacrifice of shriek. Like he, he like killed her by ripping out her spine because she was one of the people with the, uh, with the codex and then resurrected her as demo goblin. So now she's both characters at the same time. I mean, that's not, that's not any less complicated than demo goblins, original backstory. Now, now she's going by, by like demo goblin, like D E M a goblin, I guess. Dima Goblin, whatever. And Cletus says some kind of line like, oh boy, I-, I wish we could figure out some way to bring Carrion back so we'd really have the band back together. But otherwise, all of those people from that event are really kind of the main, like, three that are back in Carnage. Everyone else is just Carnageettes. But you gotta ask, why is why is Norman different? Because, like, even, like, John Jameson, as, as a big werewolf monster, still has, like... You know, he's he's got his like consciousness. He's able to like talk and interact with things, but he's also still a puppet of of Cassidy and has to just do whatever he says, no matter what. Does Norman Carnage have that same level of autonomy, which is not very much? Or is he just like a whole separate entity altogether? It was the one thing I walked away from this issue going like, is this going to really be about like Norman versus Cletus in some way? Like, that's not what I'm showing up for. Like, I'm showing up for Carnage unlocking null and seeing what happened there, 
you know, because that seems to be the sort of Damocles that's hanging over this whole story. I don't really know. And then you've got these weird motion comics. Have you seen these online where Norman Osborn in the Carnage symbiote is going after Harry and they get into like goblin glider fights and and Harry seems to be able to communicate with Norman and unlock him inside of this goblin suit. Where are those? Are those on like YouTube? They're on YouTube. Yeah, they're like these motion comics that Marvel's releasing. And you're like, when that when the hell are these happening? I, I don't know. Are those like previews or are they just here's the whole story by itself as a motion comic on YouTube? There have been two episodes of it so far, and it seems like there's more to the story. So I'm not exactly sure what the long term. It looks like a comic. I thought it was notable because for like, a you know, Harry Osborn was kind of my runner up for who Kindred is in Amazing Spider-Man. And to see him in Absolute Carnage, even if it's like an ancillary video thing, it's the first time we've seen Harry Osborn since the end of Dan Slott's run. So like it was an interesting thing to see. And, you know, it definitely continues on with that legacy because the Red Goblin thing is a real thing. And you've got Harry just like jumps on a goblin glider to fight his father. And it's like, OK, I guess he's still doing that. I he's renounced doing that four times, but OK. Yeah. So anyway, I guess like the to put a pin in it, it's like I don't know how to feel about this Norman Osborn thing because it seems to be establishing like a different set of rules for that character that seem to be going against where the rest of the story wants to be going, which is this kind of like carnage takeover of the planet and the overwhelming odds that are against, you know, everybody standing in his way because like, then you get to the cliffhanger, this issue just to jump ahead, you know, you get miles getting swept up in the carnage symbiote. And then you suddenly have to ask yourself, well, is he just going to be a carnage yet? Or is he going to have his own separate thing? And how much more complicated is that going to get? And for a series, it's only five issues as opposed to like 14, like maximum carnage. I mean, I guess five main issues rather than the, the, you know, the B books. I just wanted this story to say simple, simple, you know, like Maximum Carnage. I don't necessarily like all that much because I had to read 14 issues. But it, that thing could have resolved itself in five easily. Let's put a pin in that thought because we'll see how it plays out. The page turn I was referring to was the one where it goes from like small stakes, Venom and Spider-Man running away to turn the page and Norman Osborn has a giant underground layer in New York City. I was thinking more of that that page. And it, here's the thing that makes me sad about it is because I love this page. I think it's it's gorgeous is the page where you turn after like shortly after that. And it's just here's the five different things happening right now at this exact moment. And it's it's just like so hard to follow already. Like the timeline has already become really muddled by these time these uh, these tie in issues. And I'm worried it's just going to get much worse if they keep trying to tie them into the main story. The golden way to do the tie-ins is to have them be like a separate story happening kind of in the background. Like you see the main five issues of whatever going off going on back in like the distance. And this is just a thing like off to the side. I will say that the one-off ones so far have been really interesting. Like, I mean, all of the Web of Venom stuff so far has been great. I did like the one called separation anxiety that they just did. Here's what the life foundation symbiotes are doing leading up to absolute carnage. I, I mentioned this earlier, but I've been really surprised how much this book has really focused on Spider-Man and his world, you know, whether it be miles shouting, I'm Spider-Man 
you know, or, you know, I guess Matt Gargan is kind of now in the world of Venom because he was Venom for a while, you know, but there's so much of this that seems like more Spider-Man oriented than Venom oriented, which I found kind of disappointing because I've been so into the Venom book. And I'm hoping that this is just kind of an early way to kind of introduce stakes by taking out Spider-Man characters and allowing Venom to kind of like override them in a, in a way like to re- reclaim his kind of role. I really want Eddie Brock to be the main hero of this. I want him to be the guy who comes out on top standing over all the, all the bodies and putting his fist up in the air and all the good guys go, yeah, you did it. I can't imagine it's not going to be that he's gotten jacked so many times over the years for moments where he could have gotten like a really cool hero moment to show that he's changed and they just keep giving it to other people. It's happened so many times where you could have done something really cool with Eddie Brock that I'm worried that this is going to fall flat on its face again. And I'm really hoping that it doesn't. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that's reassuring about it is that Eddie's personality seems pretty solid in this book. Like, we're not making concessions to change who he is. And the book seems to be acknowledging that in a way that they're going to do something with it ultimately. Like... For me, the highlight of this book is the moment where Peter and Eddie decide to split up. And Peter's like, I'll go take all the heroes. And Eddie's like, what does he say? I'm just going to take all of the murderous psychopaths, you know, uh, alien creatures, you know. And it's like, yeah, that does sound about right. In in my mind, that's where the book is headed. And it just sent Spider-Man off into his own series to do something, to come back in issue five and come out of the portal like Avengers Endgame style and and help him beat up on Null or Carnage or whoever the big bad ultimately ends up being. But like it, it was weird to see the end of this book pivot away from Eddie, you know, to Miles and Mac because like Eddie didn't really have like a big moment in this. But I feel like that panel of Eddie declaring that was like him saying, I'm going to be the hero of this book. I do think that there's been noticeable efforts made to like establish Venom as more of his own thing, like push him away from Spider-Man. Cause like they, they gave him a new power. He has wings now he can fly. And that's, that's pretty different from web swinging. I I think that's a cool little change. And I don't see why a symbiote wouldn't be able to make wings. Right. I feel like that's a cool addition. And then, you know, they gave Eddie his own villain for once. Like, cause what was he got? He's got funeral pyre is his other, (laughs) His other villain, unforgettable villain that he is. Hopefully in the next couple issues, they pull it back and just because I understand Spider-Man is super woven into Venom stuff like you kind of can't have one without the other. But I do hope that they continue the trend. We'll start with Spider-Man stuff as a base and then like get away from that and have Venom do his own thing. Like maybe phase out some of these Spider-Man characters because uh, knowing Marvel and like how how much they love including all of their their billion different incarnations of Spider-Man, I'm scared like I'm sc- I'm scared something like crazy is going to happen like Silk and Spider-Gwen and Miguel show up and just kind of just take over the whole book again. That would be really upsetting to me. There's just so many Spider-Verse things going on right now and that's really big and the fact that Miles and Peter are both here is I, again, that's it's just one of those things that worries me. I hope we don't get more Spider, Spider-Man characters bumping in unless they're directly tied to Eddie. I think even Miles Morales is a bit of a stretch. I think, you know, I listened to an interview with Donny Cates talk about Miles and how important the Venom symbiote was to his backstory. 
And it's like, I think you're inflating the importance of that one Miles Venom story where some person we didn't even know was wearing the Venom suit and killed Miles' mother. It could have been any villain. I don't know how important that is. So one one final narrative beat I want to kind of talk about before we move to close out the episode is like the Mac Gargan spine piercing paralysis stuff. Because it's as cool and dramatic as that was, it kind of like made me a little less excited for the event. Because like let's let's face it, Mac Gargan is kind of a B-lister, you know, maybe on a good day. Like if you're not willing to kill this guy, then like what kind of like kill stakes are there in an absolute carnage book? I know they've been hyping it up a little bit. They were saying that it was going to have like uh, a lot of consequences for certain characters, but I'm I'm not sure how much of that is oh, I got to hype up the book talk. I I would really like for them to to just go for the jugular and just start killing off like not not even like characters like Scorn who, you know, Scorn was in like two books, neither of them really were like huge and no one remembers that character. No, no one's, no one's making a Stan account for scorn on Twitter, right? Gargan <laughs> may or may not be a villain in a movie coming up soon. They kind of tried to set that up. Maybe Marvel's kind of put him on a don't kill list. Cause we got to have him be in books, you know, for, for movie synergy. Well, what I wanted uh, from this was not for him to get killed, but for us to finally like acknowledge how crazy he was as venom. Because he was like the new carnage for a while. He was like, like attempting to assassinate uh, J. Jonah Jameson while he was the mayor or he was, you know, working for Norman Osborn as as like, you know, his uh, his right hand man and, and like his kind of like attack dog in his spare time. He would go off and just eat prostitutes, like just eat them whole as venom because he was just like really sick and twisted and like even the stuff with him and the Thunderbolts was really dark. Like they just, cause they had him become like this, like 19 foot tall giant monster that they would feed scrolls to after, after the secret invasion and the venom symbiote. Now that it's more of a character and it's on its own and it's like acknowledging the stuff that it's done in the past for some reason has not talked about any of that. It's always talking about, Oh, my time with flash. Oh, flash made me realize this maybe occasionally something about Lee Price. Like if you're going to talk about the worst host Venom has ever had, Lee Price is second. If I were Carnage, I would see Gargan and go, put that guy on the team. He's crazy. Like he's almost as bad as I am. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe even worse. Like he's doing it just for like, it's not even doing He's doing it for giggles. He's just doing it because he's bored. Like that seems to be the, the takeaway. My, my thing is more like that. And I agree with you, certainly. But like uh, even just thinking back as shortly ago, although it was a long time ago now, five years to the Superior Spider-Man run where Mac Gargan's jaw was punched off. Do you remember that? No one else seems to remember it. They had like a like an like an android thing where they replaced his jaw. But that's the very thing is like you can paralyze this guy. You know, great. He's paralyzed. Well, guess what? His legs are going to be working next week. If you want to shock me in this book, like. Kill, kill off Scorpion. Do, you know, have the balls to kill off like a B-list Spider-Man villain. You know, like kill him. Just kill him. What, what new Scorpion stories are people going to tell? Like, there's not going to be many great new Scorpion stories. People will remember him 
being eviscerated by Carnage as the first major death in Absolute Carnage. He's a character you could get away with not bringing back. They did it with Max Dillon, who I think is an even bigger character than than Scorpion, and he died just off panel. He's gone. He's dead. So, yeah, I don't see why not. I feel like a lot of people would get sad if he killed like Rhino because there was a lot of stories with him where they kind of characterized him and all that stuff with his wife and everything. But like Scorpion, what's Scorpion? All he's done is act like a jerk. He's he there's never been any moment to humanize him. He's not really been like the main like big bad of anything where you go like, oh, that guy's really badass. I want uh, more of him. Like he's the probably the most expendable character in the book. And I, you know what? Maybe issue three will surprise us and, and it'll have like this big like double page spread of Carnage just like ripping him in half. So uh, speaking of the double page spreads, let's talk about the art in this book really quickly. Because it is such a uh, like an important part of the book, you know, it is in all comics, but like this has been a showpiece, this whole series for Ryan Stegman and and his art, you know, but like not to mention like, you know, the great inking and, and, and colors by Frank Martin. What do you think of this book? I mean, the first one had, I think, like a like at least three unforgettable art moments, uh, you know, in Venom stopping the train and Spider-Man's first appearance, you know. And, and and the stuff in the jail cell, did anything rise to that level for you? Even the first page with uh, that, that kind of collage of Cletus and his skeleton and his normal face and Noel, like just that was such a cool image to me showing all these different components coming together to form our main bad guy. It like it just it tells you so much right off the bat is that there's just so many different moving parts to this all forming this one just super monster and like that's such a cool image to me that i I could see that being really iconic like i i feel like that's going to be one of those pages that's just going to be forever associated with carnage from now on sure and then the recap with the dna strand was really special too it was particularly an issue too that whole collage i mean as much as it like disappointed us narratively to see it the big collage of all of the different tie-ins happening all at once the actual image of like Carnage leaning back and then all these tendrils spilling out everywhere, showing all these different events. That to me is such a cool way to do a double page spread like that. And I've, I've always wanted more creative things with like, you know, the, the tendrils or the webbing symbolism to like make panel structures. So that one really stuck out to me. I love that page. I love the bit with Venom flying again, even if it's a bit of a rehash of imagery. The 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 way that Peter is characterized there is like not really like going along with it was a, a, a kind of a beautiful visual uh, joke, you know, there. I have to admit that moments later when Peter pulls his mask off, I found the character kind of unrecognizable. I thought he almost looked like Dylan. You know, in a way, I guess I get that like he's scared and completely wet, but like, yeah, it just didn't look like Peter to me after, you know, the previous issue where we got that stunning Peter reveal that looked so much like Peter and like Ryan Stegman's version of Peter. I was like, wow, that's one of those ones that you just really remember. And I was like, is that a reference to something? No, that's just. For this? Well, that's awesome. I think I said in my last ep- episode that, like, I think it's, like, one of my f- top, like, ten, you know, images of Peter. I, I, I'll, it'll be it'll be emblazoned in my mind. 
from here on out, which that that's like a hard standard to meet. But like to go from that to seeing the guy's face and not recognizing him, it, it's a pretty wide chasm. Although I have to admit, like Ryan is, is pulling like insane duties here with like the Carnegie's and all the detail in the backgrounds. Like I was actually when I was reading issue one, I was thinking, when did he have the time to draw all of this? Because I've seen the pages like the I, I looked up the pencils for them on his Twitter and like seeing how detailed because I know some artists will do some really loose pencils and just let the inker take the rest of the work, but not him. He really goes for every single detail like er, he knows every shadow that's going to be on the page and how it's going to curve around his subject. It almost looks like the art style from that HBO Spawn show where it's like there's so much darkness and then the characters are kind of rendered out of the negative space outside of the darkness. It's funny because in his pencils, he doesn't fill in the darkness. It's just like X's to mark where things are black. And if you're the inker, you got to be looking at this. I, I would sit and stare at it for like an hour before even beginning. Like, wait, where does he mean for this to go? So hats, hats off to J.P. Meyer for inking because like, oh boy, what, a, what an ordeal he's going through on this book. I feel like another inker could have really mangled this book, but it's just so perfect. You know, there's a lot of corners that he could have cut, but didn't. And that's so appreciated. I feel like the colors are equally on that level. Like Frank Martin is doing this whole thing with like reds and blues where like Venom is kind of blue and Carnage obviously is red. And you can see it on the covers too, right? Like even through all of the Venom series, it was all kind of blue shaded covers and now we're in these kind of like growing like red covers i mean the first one is like completely of carnage in the graveyard is like blanketed in red but this issue like as the threat of carnage grows the red seems to take over the color scheme it reminds me of the uh the spider-man animated series from the 90s where venom was constantly in half light red half light blue and that seems to kind of be true here as well and then like you get these moments where like Miles Morales is using his Venom Blast and you get the gold light of like the Venom Blast and it's breaking through those color schemes and it's so gorgeous. It, you you just get under immediately understand the power of that moveset. Something else I also thought was a really inspired choice was uh, the, the decision to color Carnage's eyes and mouth with like a jack-o'-lantern kind of glowing effect. That, that reminded me a lot of, I think the only other time I've seen that actually was in Ultimate Spider-Man back when uh, they were coloring the weird clone carnage from that timeline to have like a big glowing orb in his chest and like glowing yellow eyes. I always thought that was a really cool look for him to kind of establish him outside of Venom. And uh, I'm glad that they decided to use that. What I don't like is that it's also on Norman Carnage. I thought it would be cool if he had just the standard white eyes and it's it shows that like the Noel Grendel symbiote on Cletus like is really on a, a different level is the fact that it's just glowing and none of the others are. That's a great point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, it did bother me seeing it on the Norman thing. Yeah, you're right. And, and that actually plays into kind of a critique I have of the art. When And, I, and it's, it's tough to do this, but there, there are scenes where like the carnage symbiotes are talking to each other. And there were several times where I was thinking to myself, like, wait, which one is which? And and then you've got the kind of like the the dialogue boxes where, you know, one of them is Norman talking and one of them is Carnage talking. And you realize how quickly the shorthand was. I know when Carnage is talking because 
it's in red. But when both of them are in red, it's like kind of you get a little bit lost. And then you've got the whole like Venom thing where like Eddie's are in like gray, but the Venom symbiotes are in like black and you have a lot of juggling to go on. So then to not differentiate the carnage ones in an obvious way, it's it, like it confused me a little bit in some of those scenes. I had to really look at it and go, okay, that one has the swirl on his head in this panel when it's like a close up. So it's like that one must be traditional Cletus. And then that one must be uh, the other one, uh, the Norman Cletus, whatever we're calling him. I'm scared for when they have to do more scenes with those two characters. But like Carnage by that point will probably have even more people on his side. Like what if Miles just becomes like another Carnage goon who has like his own special Carnage design? Are are we going to have three of them standing next to each other all talking in red bubbles? Oh, God, I fear it. But I also feel like Marvel's not going to pass up the opportunity to, to create new characters for variant covers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that I, I'm also very much looking forward to is giving closure on a story that I'm probably the only one who really likes it is the Venom run from 2003 by Daniel Way. That ends on that. There's finally hope that they're actually going to write something to conclude this. Cause in one of the tie-ins for scream, they actually bring back the, uh, the venom from that comic, which was Patricia Robertson. And I really want to know what was going on with all that. Cause that book literally ends with Reed Richards and human torch and Spider-Man are all like being accosted by a horde of robot monsters who have like weaponized symbiotes to take over the world. And their setup is like this like big bad that could be as big as Null. And we've never talked about them since because there was never a conclusion to that. Yeah, it's kind of like the sleeper thing from the the Venom first host, you know, where it was like, oh, that happened. Okay, but that character's already back here in one of the B books, right? Again, there's too many there's too many symbiotes. So like I feel bad for wishing this. But I, I would be I would be okay if Sleeper was killed off because it's just like okay we already have so many other ones. In fact, like what what's this one adding to the lore? Is like oh it's the the good guy one that's not like tainted by all this evil from like Carnage or something. But like that was Toxin and you killed him off panel, and then like briefly brought him back as Eddie, then killed him on panel. So there's just no Toxin anymore at all. And then now Eddie is kind of like virtuous, like his symbiote is a little bit more virtuous and good. And, you know, after being like restored by Flash Thompson and then all that stuff from the Guardians comic. So what exactly is Sleeper adding to everything? I would I, I honestly would be fine if if he was another one of the characters that uh, Cletus just like goes, nope, you're gone and just blows him up in like one panel. <laughs> I've always said that if you're a writer on a symbiote book like Venom and you go to your editor and your pitch is, hear me out, I want to create another spawn of Venom, you should be laughed out of the room. Like, it's just like that story has been done. And that's what I've appreciated so much about Donny Cates' run is we're not getting that. Like, I mean, yes, he's inventing new characters, but we're not getting the Venom just gave birth thing. They did say... In uh, if, if we're allowed to talk really heavy on spoilers, Reed Richards did say that the Codex is in Dylan. What if Dylan is another spawn of Venom? Like, what if he has symbiote powers? 
I think it's very possible that that's what's going to happen with Dylan. I think Dylan is not a kid in the way that we think Dylan is a kid. I guess, but still, he's just going to be another big snarling snaggletooth monster that has tendrils. And like, we're already at like the triple digits with those. I don't think we need another one. Can I also, this is just a comment I have in general. I was very disappointed by the reveal that Dylan is not Eddie's brother very early on because giving a Marvel character who's kind of a, who's kind of a crazy anti-hero who kills people trying to like make them grow up and become more of an adult by introducing they have by introducing the fact that they have a kid who's in like elementary school by this point. That's happened so many times recently, and I was, like, worried they would do it again to Venom, and I was totally right. Because both Moon Knight and Deadpool have kids about Dylan's age. Although I think the Dylan thing is going to end up being, like you said, like some kind of twist on that story. Where, like, it's not actually, you know, what what we think it is, but but we'll see. So, um, so finishing up our conversation back to Absolute Carnage number two, at the end of our shows, we like to assign a grade to the comic you know xavier you've never done this before so we don't know what your real barometer is we go like a a plus to f minus is our scale but if you want to invent some new xavier scale i'm all here for it like how many toho godzillas is this out of you know whatever like you let me know but so what did you think of this issue in the end if you had to assign a value to it as we're wont to do I give it a a seven Venom symbiote spawns out of ten. There you go. And and those seven symbiote spawns will get their own variant covers. They'll all get limited series that will last for four issues and then we'll never talk about again. And then we'll bring them back for an event ten years from now. And they'll still somehow not be killed off. Well, there you go. And I'm going to give it a B minus, which is on my scale, uh, probably about a seven out of 10. Who's to say? Because B minus, what does that even mean? It's a B minus to me. Puts an idea in someone's head around around the range of quality we're talking. It's in passing enough that your parents won't ground you. So, so there you go. And that's absolute carnage number two. And here's to number three. I think things are looking up. Uh, this is kind of like, I feel like second issues and events are always kind of like, these table setting issues that aren't as exciting as the first. If we're going by like the, the, the rules of most Marvel events, I'm imagining it'll start off real strong and then get really weird and muddy in the middle where we're like, okay, where are you going with this? And then have a pretty decent conclusion. Thanks for joining us for our review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoyed part one of our coverage of the Absolute Carnage event. And in a couple months' time, we'll do part two, where you can hear all of our thoughts on the remainder of the event. But until then, for our Patreon subscribers, please be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed, where this week we've got special reviews up through the entire Nick Spencer run that's up to issue 34. And if you are reading all Absolute Carnage and want to get early access to those reviews I just mentioned up through issue number five, why not help support our show and get caught up on all of our opinions of that story at the same time? That's you, all the people that love Absolute Carnage. Come check out our Patreon. I'm really being serious. 
Yeah, and remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork, this time from Barry Kitson as he depicts the tremendously sad moment that Spider-Man learned of Gwen's demise. Plus, it's always a good reminder to check out the Untold Talks of Spider-Man podcast. They actually have been covering Spider-Man TV shows, just like we did. They are doing an episode from the amazing Spider-Man TV series with Nicholas Hammond. And then I believe this week they're doing one on the Japanese Supida-Man. So if you ever want to hear more about those characters and you were intrigued by Mark and I's conversation, like head on over there. They're going to have an awesome discussion of a few specific episodes you can watch and get their commentary on. Uh, So that'll be a lot of fun. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Yes, this is the talking community where we figured out the identity of Kindred, or at least we think so. But uh, yeah, that community is awesome because we kind of dig into comics and, and things like that in much more detail. Come on, check us out. There's a link to it in the description and you can come join our community. Also important, a special thank you to Rick Coast, our amazing, spectacular, adjectiveless web of editor who cut together this very episode. Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where we can find your work? Because it is all so awesome. Thanks, Dan. You can find my work at modernaudiodrama.com. There is the shows The Behemoth, The Behemoth 2, the superhero audio drama Inhale, as well as the science audio fiction series Carbon Dreams and Is There Anybody Out There, as well as many others. You can also find a lot of my work at rickcoast.com or follow me on Twitter at rickcoast. That's C-O-S-T-E at the end. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. And everybody go check out his Behemoth podcast. He just kind of retitled the second season of it to Behemoth 2. And, you know, I'm listening to that now and having a great time and I I can't recommend it enough. Mark, where can we find your work online this week? Uh, well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Chasing ASM Blog, where I recently got into a fight with the legendary Jerry Conway over the validity of In-N-Out Burger. Well, you know, I am not a fan of In-N-Out Burger either, even though I live in California with Jerry Conway. I think he's even like 15 minutes away from me where he lives. And I'll tell you what, like vastly overrated. They are like the Canadian bacon of burgers. That's what I told the world. It was like I got involved in one of those give us your your controversial opinion quote tweet things that's been going around like wildfire on Twitter over the last few weeks. And I did mine about in and out. And Jerry said that, quote unquote, he would never talk to me again after that. And then I followed it up by saying if I would prefer to throw in and out burger off the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, actually, I called it the GW Brooklyn Bridge, you know, just for old time's sake. And I, I said that In-N-Out Burger was the was the hair band to Gwen Stacy. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, what? No, no, not, not that the In-N-Out Burger. I said, excuse me, that animal style was was to uh, In-N-Out Burger what Gwen's hair band was to her. I mean, it's just a a boring way to to or, or a, a very patronizing way to kind of spice up a boring character, right? I mean. Come on. Well, thank you for explaining that joke. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, sorry. No, no, no. I mean, it was really good. That was funny. Yeah. No, I don't. I definitely don't disagree with you. Shake Shack all the way. New York wins the burger game even. And of course, you can get my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. 
And what about you, Dan? Where can we find you? I'll add, and that's a great Christmas present if people are thinking about a Spider-Man book to pick up this year. I could use the royalties, folks. I'm, I'm not even going to hide it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could use the royalties, too, because this week I'm on TV Guide and I've been doing weekly recap articles of The Mandalorian. So if you like my take on stuff and you want to get my snarky take on Star Wars, which I've become quite known for, uh, check out my uh, reviews or recaps of The Mandalorian over on TV Guide, and I'll provide really fun links to those over on my Twitter feed. It's at SupSpiderTalk, where you can kind of follow that. And I'm talking about Spider-Man a lot, but boy, you know, a new piece of Star Wars content means I can make some dough from writing about it. So, Dan, has it progressed past Mandaborian for you yet? It's starting to get to be not boring, and I know I'm going to lose a lot of you know, support here. Boy, you know, having a character whose face you can't see, you know, and really doesn't make any interesting choices really is not great for serialized television. I know that I'm saying that in a podcast where we're talking about a guy whose face is covered by a mask and fights the same villains over and over again. I realize how silly that sounds. Boy, I think it's different on television. So that's why they, I guess they have all those different Spider-Man actors take their masks off constantly in all these movies because, boy, it helps to see a bit of a human face. I, I have not started watching Mandalorian yet, so I can't pretend to have that fight with you yet. Okay, so, well, we, we'll we, save it, it for another Give it time. Episode. We got <laughs> you know, one, one of those things that is true across all mediums, television, comics, podcasts, you know, it's, it's our uh, statement here at the end of our show, our, our motto, if you will. Mark, what's the motto with you? It is, of course, with great podcasts, there must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't miss the next